welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. I, I just couldn't be more thrilled to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Lucy Pepiat uh, is, is sort of one of my heroes. I don't know how she does all that she does. Uh, she she uh, is, is married to Nick. They have four sons. Uh, she is the principal of Westminster Theological Center uh, with Nick. She uh, leads a, a church in Bristol called Crossnet. Uh, her latest book uh, is called uh, Paul, uh, Unveiling Paul's Women, and it says this about it. This book points the, uh, paints the Apostle Paul as a radical visionary church planter who championed women in all forms of leadership. Amen. So uh, please put your hands together and welcome Lucy Pepiat. Thanks, Lucy. Go Thanks, for it. Kate. Great. It's so good to be here. Um, thanks for having me. And I love those testimonies and prophecies. God's amazing. It's just fantastic to hear all of that. Um, okay, now I've been given a brief <laughs> to talk to you about the overarching narrative in the whole Bible in about 25 minutes, which is possible. And uh, we're going to see some amazing things in the Bible. So this is your series on reading the Bible. Please take the opportunity to read the Bible during this series. And um, remember to read whole books of the Bible and not just in bits, because reading the Bible in bits is not the best way to do it. Okay, let, let me just pray. Lord, we pray that you would open up more of your truths to us this morning about who you are, about your revelation that's been given to us in this amazing book. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are, uh, this one book actually is made up of 66 books. There are 66 books in the Bible. Um, there are 39 of them are in the Old Testament, and that was written, those books were written from between about 1600 BC to about 400 BC, and then 27 of them are in the New Testament, and they were all written in the first century AD. So all quite a long time ago, and all very different from each other. So it's a sort of disparate set of books written by different authors. Some were probably written by multiple authors. And all of them actually have a different purpose. So you start with the first book giving you the origins of the creation of the whole universe. That's quite ambitious um, for a book. And then you have the choosing of Israel. You have the giving of the law. You have history, and you have more history, and you have songs, and you have poems, and you have lament, and you have prophecies, and you have exhortation, and you have teaching, and you have doctrine, and you have correction, and you have evangelism, and you finish on the wildest prophecy that you could ever read in the world. It's an amazing book. It inspires people. 
It fascinates people. It perplexes people. I hope you've been troubled by the Bible, because if you haven't, you haven't read enough of it. It should trouble you. It should unsettle you. It should perplex you. But it also is food. And we don't really know how or why, but there's something about reading the Bible that feeds us, that comes into our spirits and into our souls and into our minds and kind of remakes us as we read it. It's incredibly powerful. And the reason it's powerful is because at its heart, it's revelation. It's the revelation of God. It's the revelation of his nature, of his character, of his heart, of his purposes, and of his destiny for humankind. But it's also a revelation of ourselves. It's a mirror up to us. It shows us our nature, our character, our hearts, our purpose, and our destiny. So it's a funny kind of revelation about two massive things that are at the center of the world, and it inspires us and fascinates us, and whatever it is, it certainly is not boring. It's an extraordinary book. But it's no wonder, because it's these 66 books, it's no wonder really that some scholars who look at these books in great detail say, well, you can't have one theme that just holds the whole thing together. And it was written by all these different people over thousands of years. So why would you think that there would be one theme? Only Christians think that there is an overarching narrative. Christians think that all of those 66 books together do come together in a holy Bible. And we've co-opted the Hebrew Bible, and we've taken the Jewish scriptures also as our own, which is a contentious thing to do if you think about it, if you were Jewish. And we've taken them on, and we've said, actually, we're going to own those as well. So why have we done that? We're going to look at the reason why we've done that. Because there are overarching themes, and there is a big story, and there is a grand narrative. And the way to understand it is through three concepts that come out in the whole of the Bible, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And those three concepts are image, covenant, and temple. Image, covenant, and temple. And I want to show you how these three themes draw together the whole story of God and humanity and how they help us to see that at the heart of this story of God and humanity is an amazing story that we as individuals get drawn into. It's a story of how God created humanity in his own image and he created humanity in his own image and his own likeness to be fitting carriers of the presence of God, to be dwelling places of God himself. That's why he created us. And that's the destiny of humankind. Because we're made in his image, it's part of our destiny 
that God is going to confer on us the things that belong to him, and we'll look at that in more detail. And so he is going to confer on us, gift to us, authority, glory, and rulership in his kingdom. And you can read about that in Luke 22. We're obviously not going to take one text and just look at that, but I'll refer to a few as we go through. And so we have pictures in the Bible about what the people of God look like and what their identity is. And there are kind of a lot of different pictures, and these are some of them, that we would be trustworthy representatives of God in this world, that we would be ambassadors for Jesus Christ on the earth, or that we would be willing partners with him. That's an amazing picture, that we'd be co-workers with God, that we'd build something together or create something together. Imagine creating something with God. Another picture is that we'd be loving children who know how to honor their father by doing his will. And another one is an adoring wife, or perhaps more to the point, an adored wife who will do anything for her beloved husband. So what's the common factor in all those pictures? They're all relational. They're all about relationship. They're not about a contract. They're all about relationships, actually, of trust and love and vulnerability and knowledge. The things that we all crave. Because what we really crave is to be really known and at the same time really loved. That's what we want. That's our deepest desire in our hearts would, would be that we were known and loved. And that's how the Bible describes God's relationship to us and him uh, uh, and us and us to him. So those are some of the pictures. And the Bible, the whole Bible, tells the story of the journey of preparation to become the carriers of the presence of God and to be worthy and to be ready to have conferred upon us the authority and the glory and the rulership of the kingdom. And that's what God wants for us. So it tells us this story of how first the Jewish people and then the church, as a continuation of the Jews' story, is his central piece in the whole of history, in the history of the world. And that as this world is moving towards a climax, which it is, and the climax is going to be that Jesus Christ is going to come again, and when he comes again, it'll be in glory. It won't be like the first time where people didn't know who he was. Because when he comes again, every knee will bow before him. And every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And his glory will be revealed to the whole universe. It's going to be an amazing time. But that's the climax of history. And a lot of people don't know that. 
They don't know that actually the history of the universe is in God's hands. And God has placed his church on this earth to move that history on, to pray for the kingdom to come. And the way he does that is to bind people to himself and himself to people. And this is what we call the covenant. So he's given humanity an identity, a purpose, a promise, and a hope. And the reason that we know this is because of what we know of the image and the covenant and the temple. So he creates a people in his own image. He forms a covenant and he builds a temple. So let's look at this in a bit more detail. I'm just going to take a kind of broad sweep through. So in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, we know that God makes humankind, male and female, in his own image and likeness. And in Genesis 2, we get a little different slant on the story, and we know that man and woman are created from the same substance. They were once one, and now they're two, because they're made to reunite. And they're made in perfect partnership and complementarity. And then in Genesis 3, we find out that so much is lost. And this image that had been given them becomes broken, and it becomes damaged. And people say, oh, well, sin separates us from God. But, you know, God did eject the first humans from the garden, but he just followed them out. He followed them out. And if you don't believe me, go and see how he treated Cain. When Cain was thinking about doing the worst thing he could ever do, which was to kill his brother, and guess what? God is crouching right next to him, saying, don't. But he still does. And even when he does, God puts a mark on him so that his whole life isn't destroyed. Isn't that brilliant? So that's the tragic story of, God, of people made in the image and likeness of God and breaking that image. And what we may not know from Genesis, because it's not immediately obvious to modern readers, but it would have been obvious to the first readers of Genesis and people in the ancient world, is that when the writer of Genesis tells the story of the origins of creation, what he's really doing is saying God was building a temple. So the language there told anyone who was aware of it that this was a temple that was being built. And they would have been aware of when they were reading it, oh gosh, this sounds like when gods make temples. Sounds like those kind of stories. And they would have known also that in those kind of stories that were written at the same time as Genesis, of other gods who created the world in other ways, or created a temple, that when you created a temple, the very last thing you would do as a god would be to put your own image in the middle of that temple. That was the crowning glory, to put your image in and say, now you worship me, this is my temple. But in our story in Genesis, the god who we worship, and this is just mind-blowing, instead of putting an image of himself in the temple, his last act is to place humanity 
in the middle of his temple. So humanity is the image that he chooses to represent himself. We are the icon. We're the image. We're the presence bearers. But what the Bible also tells us, the whole story tells us, is that we won't get that and we won't do it well unless we understand what it means, unless we have a deep understanding in our hearts and our minds what it means to be God's image bearers, and unless we have some concept of who God is and why he wants this for us. And so this, the Bible tells a tragic story, really, in the beginning of how humanity just keeps forsaking God, keeps not doing what they're told. And they do that, and we do that, because God's given us freedom of our will. Now, you've probably heard something like, well, God gives us free will so that we can love him freely or something like that. Have you heard things like that? And that's kind of okay, and maybe that works to some extent, but it certainly doesn't work to make any excuse for evil because there's no reason that we can give that works. But there's something deeper and more important about the fact that God has placed wills in human beings, and it's to do with becoming the image bearers that he wants us to be and becoming the people who are ready to have glory and authority and rulership conferred upon them. And that's because a human will is a very powerful and dynamic force in this world. And we know that because we know that a will turned against God and in rebellion to God, can cause untold and horrific destruction. And God knows that, but God also knows that a will fully submitted to his will can cause untold and glorious good, and can outweigh and outwit the destruction, and can overcome evil with good. That's the story of the Bible, that a will submitted to God can overcome the evil and the destruction in this world. And because God was never going to give up on us, because he never did, despite getting fed up with humanity, sacrificing their sons and daughters and doing horrific things like that, he made a covenant with broken, rebellious, willful, lost humanity because he always knew the potential that was in us. And so in Genesis 15, he makes a covenant with Abraham where he promises Abraham descendants and land. And in Exodus 6, the covenant is extended through Moses and there's the giving of the law and there's a key phrase here, which then reverberates throughout the whole Bible. And it's the promise of, you will be my people, and I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will be your God. 
Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And so God stamps his ownership on them and he's never going to withdraw it. And then, then he promises to them that his presence will always be with them. And when Moses says, I'm not going to go and do what you asked me to do unless your presence goes with us, he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And you might be familiar with the, that idea in Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all who, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <coughs> it's amazing how many of us need rest, and we're so stressed in our souls our souls are frayed, and they need rest, and God promises that. And that becomes the heart of his covenant, that his presence will always be with us. And his presence is the most healing salve that we could ever know of. It's the most beautiful thing. There's a sweetness and a lightness about God's presence it helps. And so the covenant is a promise, but it's also an exchange. A covenant is, I will do this for you, and you will do this for me. And this covenant is based on the fact that God says, all that I have, I give to you, and all that I am, I share with you. Now, if you've been to a, a wedding recently, that will be familiar to you. All that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. And in a marriage, uh, a man and a woman say that to one another. And in God's covenant with his people, he says it to us, and he asks us to say it back to him. But guess what? In a covenant with the creator of the universe, guess who comes off better if we get to share everything? Isn't that an amazing exchange? That God says, all that I have, I give to you. And all I want is in exchange is all that you have. What do I have? Nothing, but you do, because you have yourself. And that's all he wants. It's all he wants you to give to him. That's your side of the covenant. So who comes off best? We get emotional and spiritual security. We get the mending of broken relationships. We get the promise of blessing, present and future, and we have healing and peace for our souls. He will give everything in exchange for your life because he wants all of you. And the reason he wants all of you is because he knows that when he has all of you, you will be the best version of yourself that you could ever be. Because he knows you better than anybody else. 
and he knows you better than you even know yourself. Our lives are at their best when we learn to submit ourselves to God. It's then that we become fully alive and fully human. So the Old Testament is the story of the image of God and of the covenant and of the temple and of God's love and Israel's unfaithfulness, of deliverance from exile, the giving of the law, of judges, of kings anointed and destroyed, of kingdoms raised up and then lost, of heroes and baddies and characters with tragic flaws. It's an amazing book, the Old Testament. But in the middle of it all, there's a message that God never changes, that his nature stays the same, and this is his nature. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. He has compassion on all that he has made. His mercies are new every morning. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down, and his goodness endures forever. That's all from the Old Testament. And there are prophets in the Old Testament who look forward to a time really of perfection, a time of promise and of hope, of restoration, a time of tummies fed and delicious wine and banquets and peace and restoration and overflow and abundance. And you can find those pictures in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah and in Joel, but they didn't really know how this was going to come, but they believed there was going to be a Messiah who would come. And when he came, all these things would happen. And then he came, and he came in Jesus, and Jesus was the perfect image. And that's what he's called in Colossians and in other places and in Hebrews. He's the perfect image. He's the perfect image of God. And the perfect image of God comes in the Son and really amazingly takes on our broken image. So this perfect, flawless, beautiful Son of God comes to earth. But remember the exchange. All that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. And that's what you see in the incarnation. The Son of God comes and he says, well, all that I am, I'm going to share with you, so let me just take you on. And I'll take on your broken image. And the result of doing that was that then he had to be broken for our sakes because he wanted to heal us. And so in the most extraordinary story, God himself comes to earth, shares everything with us, all our pain and all our sin, and agrees to take it all on because that's the covenant. And in his perfect image, he becomes broken for us so that he can heal us and that then he can rebuild us into a perfect image who becomes his temple. And that's what he does. So where Abraham had slept while God 
cut the covenant in Genesis 15. The disciples sleep while Jesus wrestles with God in his human will to say, I don't know if I want to do this, but if you want me to do it, I will. And you see, that's the perfect picture of a human will submitted to God saved the world. And he took on this will that is so powerful, a human will, and he brought it into submission to the will of God. And when he did, humanity was saved. It's a brilliant picture. So Jesus dies in our place and then raised, is raised from the dead. And the worst results of sin are cancelled at the cross. He restores the image in us by the gift of himself and his spirit. He purifies his bride and he brings the deepest of reconciliation with him and with one another. And so part of the preparation for this temple is that we would learn to live together, that we'd learn to be merciful to one another, to forgive each other, and to not mind being squashed up together one stone on another, building God's temple. And at the very end of the Bible, in this crazy prophecy of John's in Revelation, you come back to the theme of the temple. And John is shown the most beautiful city, which is built to receive the covenant people of God, and where there'll be no more pain, and no more mourning, and no more crying, and no more fear, and it's just a phenomenal happy ending. Everybody wants a happy ending, and we've got one. We've got one coming. And John writes, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so Jesus comes as the perfect image and the new temple. And he lives out this covenant that God had promised to keep on pain of death so that he could bind us to himself and us to him because he knows the potential of a human life and he knows the goodness and the glory and the power that we can carry if we learn how to walk with him. It's the best story ever. It's the best fantasy, the best fairy tale, the best epic. It outstories any story, except it's true. And it's real. And it's more real than anything else you'll ever know. And at the end, there's still an invitation from God. There's an invitation. There's always an invitation. It's a standing invitation to anyone, to any human being that he created. There's an invitation to come back to your creator. And the invitation goes out to the thirsty, and to the weak, and to the hungry, and it goes out to the strong, and the proud, and the self-sufficient. He doesn't mind where you are. He doesn't mind what you've done. He just wants you, because that means more to him than anything else.
And so God is constantly issuing his invitation, and all we have to do is just say yes, like that wonderful lady said. And Jesus is ready in God to receive us and to give us all of himself, his goodness, his love, his presence, his light, his life, and the fulfillment of all his promises. Amen. That's amazing, isn't it? To, to, to go through the whole of the story of the Bible and how it fits together. Just give me a wave if you found that helpful today. Yeah, I kept thinking, there was someone on the aeroplane next to me yesterday. Have you seen those games you get on your phone where it puts four random pictures up and then you have to work out the word that holds all four together? I don't know what it's called. And, and sometimes the Bible can feel like that. And Lucy's given us keys there that suddenly it all morphs. And you go, oh, my goodness, it all fits. And we're part of it. I'd love us just to, um, as we finish, uh, I'm going to ask Lucy if you just pray for us. I'd, I'd love for each one of us uh, to invite the Lord by his spirit to renew our love for the Bible. Uh, some of us, I know, just just love God's word and and many of you here, I know, you sit every day with your Bibles and often weep with, with your Bibles and pray. Your Bi- Others of us, if we're honest, sometimes we get a bit bored or confused or disillusioned with the Bible. And it seems to me this is a great morning to say, God, I, I, I want you to draw me into this story of all stories. Is that okay? Because th- this is truth. We sang earlier, you are the way, the truth, and life. Ultimately, how do you know what the truth is? It's through a living encounter with Jesus Christ who reveals himself in Scripture. And uh, so um, why, don't, um, why don't you just open your hands on your lap, as it were, as a symbol, if you're saying, God, I want to just grow in my love for your word and my understanding of your word. And Lucy's going to pray. Mm. Thank you, Lord, so much for your presence. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you are life and that there is life in your word, that it's not a lifeless word, but it has power and it has dynamism and it has healing and it has salvation. And Lord, I pray for this church and these congregations that as they study your word through their sermons, that you would just um, ignite a passion for your word in this church, that people would find they just want to, they can't wait for the time when they can just read their Bibles, that there'd be space for your word, that there'd be uh, knowledge and revelation, that there'd be insight, that people, and I pray as well, that there'd be people remembering verses that they didn't realize they knew, that somehow you'd be sowing the word into hearts and minds and that there'd be great recall (laughs) and I pray Lord that there'd be testimonies of people giving your word to other people like bread like actual food giving your word out maybe to people who don't know you 
and just offering your food. Bless them, Lord. Anoint them. Move by your spirit and create a love and passion for your Bible. Amen.